This podcast is brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada and the University of Toronto's NATO Research Group. Ce balado vous est présenté par l'Association canadienne pour l'OTAN et le Centre de recherche sur l'OTAN de l'Université de Toronto. Climate change poses a great threat to the world. It does not stop at a nation's borders, nor can it be fought by any singular country. Global security depends on addressing this generational challenge. Today on Sustainable Security, we examine the importance of the UN Sustainable Development Goal 13, Climate Action. Joining me is Aaron Sikorsky, Director of the Center for Climate and Security based out of Washington, D.C. Her previous work included over a decade in the U.S. intelligence community, where she led the community's environmental and climate security analysis. My name is Eric Jackson. I am a program editor of the NATO Association of Canada. Each episode, we'll explore how the Sustainable Development Goals relate and address global security topics. The goal of this podcast is to highlight the need to incorporate sustainability in all our solutions. The world is changing, so too should our approach to emerging threats. Welcome to Sustainable Security. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Now, before we get into this conversation, I'm really looking forward to it as climate change is certainly one of the most pressing issues of our time. And security is often thought of in its conventional sense, armed conflict consisting of two actors. However, the recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that we are in immediate danger from climate change. Can you share with us why climate change is a direct threat to a country's security and how the two concepts are related to each other? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about national security, right, and as you mentioned in the conventional sense, for a long time, national security was thought of as uh, the threat from other states, right? Governments were concerned what other states were going to do. But then after 9-11, and we saw that the havoc that terrorists and non-state actors could wreak, then the definition of security was expanded to include these types of groups. And now we're in a moment when in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, and as we see the impacts of climate change uh, hitting communities around the globe, where these the idea of actorless risks, right? These uh, things that cross borders that no one state is responsible for, yet everyone is affected by and has a responsibility to address are coming together and they're intersecting with more traditional threats uh, and risks from states, from non-state actors. So as we've seen this summer, you know, no part of the globe was spared from climate change crises. Even wealthy countries like Germany or the United States uh, faced floods and fires. And these things strain security uh, services and militaries, but they also create their own potential risks of, of conflict and violence as communities are strained, they come into contact with one another, uh, because of internal migration. I mean, there's all sorts of links to national security and, and climate change is really shaping the landscape in which states have to operate in a way uh, that we've never before seen. Now, the Center for Climate and Security was founded in 2010 with the goal of addressing the threat posed by climate change. In the last decade, how has the world's approach and acceptance of climate action evolved? Yeah, a lot has happened in, in the past 10 years when we look at the intersection of climate change and security. And I would say the biggest difference over the past 10 years is we've moved from a place where we are debating about whether climate change is really a problem at all 
to general agreement that climate change and climate security risks exist, but now what do we do about it? And that's a much uh, healthier debate, I think, to have. And, and uh, we, can, we can make more progress there. I think in the climate security space in particular, we've seen a shift where we uh, uh, initially the focus was really on, okay, what does climate change mean to military infrastructure? What does it mean to military bases, right? When you have in the United States, the Gulf Coast uh, being battered by hurricanes that cause billions of dollars of damage to US military facilities there, or uh, facilities in California that are threatened by wildfires, right? We've moved from that, that bucket of risk, which is very important, um, but to a broader understanding of climate security risks as I was talking about earlier, where we see climate change contributing to instability with states and increasing the risk of conflict, right? You can look mm -hmm. to the Middle East this summer, for example, where you had unprecedented drought and high temperatures in Iran and Iraq and Lebanon, where you ended up with people out in the streets protesting their governments because of water shortages. And it wasn't just the climate change effects that, that led to this, but also you know, poor governance and corruption, uh, poor water management for many years. So you layer climate shocks on top of these existing risks and, and you have a very combustible mix. And so I think that's a big change we've seen over the past 10 years is a better understanding of um, how climate change drives the, the security landscape writ large. I find very interesting how you mentioned that there over the last decade we've seen a, a greater acceptance of the threat of climate change and which is which is definitely true I think more and more people are are really accepting acknowledging that there is a huge systemic issue at play here but I think there's still also a huge systemic barrier and significant barrier to actual real action on climate change taking place due to politicization of the topic as well as polarization of the topic. And we see this in US politics in frankly any election in the United States, but also we see in Canada during the 2021 federal election where different party platforms have very different targets to meet their sort of Canada's climate change action. So how can we frame climate change as a universal issue that crosses party lines wherever the country is and is equally integrated into our national policies? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's absolutely a challenging issue. And it's not just a problem in the US and Canada, but you saw it play out this summer as well in countries like Turkey, where the government blamed the Kurds for the wildfires there, or in Algeria, where the government blamed uh, quote unquote terrorist groups linked to Morocco and uh, Israel. So the politicization of climate change and climate impacts is a way that uh, many governments will try to deflect on these issues. I think the, the good news, if you can call it good news, what we've seen here in the United States, for better or for worse, is that as climate effects become more acute and more and more people experience them in their day-to-day -day lives, you see some of that uh, polarization and politicization uh, fall away because people can't just can't ignore it. I think about my home state of Wisconsin, where I grew up, where uh, hunting and fishing is a key part of the culture and, and the rural part of the state. And due to climate change, there's been real, real changes in uh, 
the tick population with deer for hunting, right? Because the temperatures mm -hmm. are warmer in the winter, the ticks don't all die in the winter, and then, then the tick issue is much more pronounced. And that's something that you've actually seen uh, across party lines, hunters in the community uh, express concern about and, and worry about, about climate risk. So I think if you can bring it to that very local level, right, for folks where they can really grasp and put their hands around it happening to them, then you can get over some of that politicization and polarization. And, and again, as I said earlier, I do think we have moved to a healthier debate here in, in the US and climate security is a big piece of that. There's been bipartisan support and bipartisan action on climate security, even during the Trump administration Congress, the Republican led Congress passed legislation requiring the Pentagon to take action on climate security issues. So I think making those links to national security is another way in which you can overcome some of the politics. Absolutely. And it's interesting how national security can really be a unifying front for any sort of large scale systemic issue. So mm -hmm. like going, mm -hmm. going back to for sort of 9-11, for example, and that was a unifying thing 20 years ago um, from a foreign policy perspective for the United States and, and also much of, of the Western world. Fast forward now to 20 years later, climate change is really that sort of now unifying threat that can create this bipartisan port for actual action. I was just going to jump in and I say, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right. I think one of the challenges we have to be careful of with climate change, though, is to make sure that we don't treat it as a unifying thing within a country and then blame others outside of the country, right? And, and use it as a reason to keep people out or to push against other countries because climate change is something that's going to require cooperation across uh, country lines. And so I think that needs to be a big, a big part of the answer as well. And so it can't, we can't just turn inward on it. So that would be my one, my one cautionary note there. Absolutely. And it also recognizes that climate change impacts and affects people differently. So you made the example of deer hunters in, in Wisconsin, and I had never even thought about sort of impact from climate change, because when we conventionally think of climate change, we think of rising sea levels, rising temperatures, and really it's affecting coastal states. If internal states such as Wisconsin um, is also fearing the effects of climate change, that's a way to build this sort of unifying sentiment, not only across the United States, but also across the world as everyone now becomes affected. You just have to frame it in a way that's, that's acceptable and it's accessible to the people. So it's really, it's really interesting sort of using that example and, and seeing how it, climate change affects people differently. And that in itself is a way to get people from all different backgrounds and all different countries and nationalities to support real climate action. Absolutely. Now, now, sort of going off to a sort of larger topic in terms of NATO itself, and at the 2021 mm -hmm. NATO summit in Brussels, they endorsed the 2030 action plan that recognizes climate change as a security threat. The, the alliance is actually now actively working to reduce emissions in their militaries by finding ways in which they don't have to rely solely on fossil fuels. Now, what role does an organization like NATO or any other sort of smaller regional organization have in making a significant difference to fight against climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. And NATO has really been a leader on the world stage on these climate security issues. And we at the Center for Climate and Security applaud uh, the work they have done to put this issue front and center and also applaud Canada, who at that summit stood up and said they were willing to take the lead on establishing a NATO center of excellence around climate and security, which I think is fantastic and will be a real resource for uh, all the NATO allies. 
you know, in terms of the role that NATO has, I think there are a handful of, of things that can be really important uh, for it to do. One is to promote unified risk assessments across the alliance around how climate change uh, poses risk to NATO nations. And this is something that's part of their action plan, something I think they're moving forward on. But how do you take uh, scientific data, right, the predictive capabilities that are out there, which on climate change are very powerful, um, unlike all the other things we look at in national security, right, leadership intentions, societal cohesion that are very hard to predict uh, one year out, much less five to 10 years out on climate change. We have pretty good ideas of at certain temperature levels what the physical hazards will look like, right? So how do you take that information and then integrate it with other risk factors and, and come out with some assessments of where we need to be most concerned, where are the highest security risks? And that's, that's a role that NATO can play and, and lead on and draw on work that many members of the Alliance have already begun in the UK and the US and elsewhere. Another area in which uh, NATO can play a key role is helping its uh, member countries think through adaptation and resilience. What do they need to do to make their militaries and security services resilient to climate risks, right? Whether that's coastal, uh, bases, whether it is uh, operating in harsh environments, right? In parts of the world, temperatures, uh, potential to get so high, the wet, what's called the wet bulb temperature, which is related to humidity, gets so high that humans can't sustain life in that temperature. And so how can you fight there if you can't live there? So that's, I, all of these types of things are things NATO, NATO can do in the ad adaptation and resilience. And then the third area that you mentioned is this question of reducing emissions in militaries. And I'll be honest with you, I think this is one of the hardest areas um, for uh, militaries and security services to take action on. You gotta, you know, the, how, do you, how do you make a renewable jet fuel, for example? Mm -hmm. um, but this is a place where NATO can lead by example, where they can partner uh, with the private sector and, and can really take a hard look at, at opportunities to reduce emissions by militaries. And part of that, the first step is understanding the, the level of emissions from militaries, right? That's a question that I think hasn't been fully answered yet in many countries. Um, but then how do you move forward and how do you make an operational case that not only are you making progress on climate change by pursuing renewable fuel, but also it's actually good for, for your operations, right? It helps you operate more efficiently, helps you save money. Maybe you can operate more quietly if you're doing some kind of special forces mission. So doing that hard work, I think is really important and something if I can just put a plug in here for the International Military Council on Climate and Security, which is a, a group that, that I lead that pulls together representatives from 38 different countries uh, who are security or military leaders in their countries to come together and talk about, okay, what are the best practices on climate security? How do we work together? And this group, uh, IMCCS, has worked closely with partners at NATO to try and help them think through this. And I, I think I think I'm really excited actually about where this is going and what the opportunities are uh, for NATO to show leadership here. That's really exciting that there is an opportunity that uh, there's a way to bridge people can come together and really deal and find innovative ways to tackle climate change. And like with NATO taking a, a leadership role, it could really well take a good leadership role into the future towards 2030, as well as going back to what you said earlier about a more, a larger acceptance of the threat of climate change and acknowledging the real, uh, the real issues that come with it. 
what policies must be prioritized going forward to ensure that we create a safe, secure, and prosperous society, not only in the United States or Canada, but also around the world? You know, at the, at the highest level, what we need to do is make sure that we can, I often say, both walk and chew gum at the same time. We have <laughs> to pursue mitigation or cutting emissions, right? I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, the IPCC report, every study we look at shows that if you don't cut emissions, the trajectory we're on for warming means catastrophic security risks around the globe in the second half of the century, and no one will be safe in that scenario. Uh, so you have to find ways to cut emissions and cut them quickly. At the same time, and again, this was in the IPCC report, because of the amount of warming that has already happened, there are certain changes baked in to the system already that we're going to have to deal with. And you know, we've talked about a few that we've seen this summer. We'll see more um, in the years to come. And so we have to find ways to adapt and build resilience as well at the same time. It's not, a, it's not an either or, right? Either we become resilient or we cut emissions, you gotta do both. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, pursuing policies that do both of those is critical and pursuing them in such a way that we protect countries that have not contributed the most to emissions, right? But are suffering the most severe effects we have a responsibility to help those countries, not, not only because it's the right thing to do, but, but because it will actually make us all safer, right? Mm -hmm. If we allow uh, things to spiral out of control in some of these parts of the world due to climate shocks, that puts uh, the United States and Canada and Europe at risk as well. And so it's in our, in our interests to help fund resilience, right? To contribute to the Green Climate Fund, to help them uh, make the transition away from fossil fuels all of those things help everyone's collective security. And in many cases, we'll have other added security benefits beyond uh, just climate risks. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. To learn more about the NATO Association of Canada, look us up online at natoassociation.ca and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to stay up to date on all things NATO. Until next time, take care.